We can already see people are heading out for the hills uh, this summer, but today's not a great, kind of warm, sunny day like we expect here in Colorado as we've had um, uh, throughout the spring. But I'm glad that you're here to share with us. You know, summer's that time where we often get a break from the routine, whether you're going to school or working at a job and you do things you don't normally do, go traveling, um, get the grill going outside, and just, just do a change of life. And that's very healthy for us. But one area where you don't want to do that is your spiritual life. Because I've actually found in my own life that summer is the time where I actually can grow. Just like everything around us is growing in the summer, the trees, the flowers, everything else, I've found that summertime has always been my greatest period of spiritual growth. And in ministry, we have a calendar that kind of kicks off in August and goes all the way through the end of May. And so we've got that window of time in the summer where the demands aren't quite as as stressful and we can step back, really take longer times of prayer and journal and... and, uh, read books that we've been wanting to, to read, think about things that we haven't had time to really think deeply about. And I want to challenge you this summer to make summer a time of great growth for you. Don't take a vacation from God. Keep God as a center part of your life. In fact, right now, um, our young people, a bunch of middle schoolers are up at camp, and they're experiencing some uh, life-changing teaching and fellowship. Hopefully they're away from their phones, they're away from the computers, they're with one another, and they're listening to God. And I've just known from my work as a, as a student pastor and as a children's um, pastor that kids make decisions in summer that affect the rest of their lives. And I encourage you, be in prayer for our kids this summer, but don't just pray for kids, pray for our adults too. Maybe Make summer a time for you to grow. And that's why we've chosen to walk through Philippians on this joy ride all through summer because we want to really grow this summer. Don't you? Don't you want to go deeper with God? Not just get a head full of information, but really take some steps forward. And we learned last week that Paul was being redirected in his journey of taking the gospel to different places to go to Europe. And he went to this city called Philippi and began to minister there and formed the very first church in the continent of Europe. And because of his relationship with this church in Philippi, he began to write letters. And the letter we have in the Bible is one of the letters that he wrote to the church at Philippi. And there's a theme all through this book that you'll notice. We're going to notice it today. You're going to notice it virtually every week. There's a theme of joy. Joy appears in the words joy or rejoicing more than a dozen times in this book. And where joy is found is in Christ. It's found in a relationship with Christ. But it's even beyond that. It's a joy that's found not only in our relationship with Christ, but our relationship with our church body, with our church family, and our commitment to do God's work together. And we find that over and over again through this book of Philippians. You'll find that as you go through um, Paul's letters that, that just like this one, Paul writes very similarly in all of his letters, at least the format of the letters. Philippians is one of um, four letters that are called the prison epistles. And the reason they're called that is because it's believed Paul wrote all of them from the same period of time in a Roman prison. Now, some may think it's another prison, but we'll tell you next week that, that it really seems like it's the prison in Rome. And it's ironic because Paul's, Paul begins all these letters while he's in prison with, with gratefulness, with these incredible prayers. And you learn a lot about Paul and his faith and his own attitude by his prayers. And I just want you to know that, that you reveal a lot about yourself through your prayers. If you're in a group of people and you listen to how they pray, it tells a whole lot about themselves. For one, it tells about the position of their heart. 
It tells where someone is, is grateful. It tells you whether someone is repentant or sorrowful. It tells you where someone is depressed or someone is elated. It just tells you the state of the heart. It really tells you where someone is coming from. When they start their prayers off saying, thank you, God, or I praise you, it tells them that you're grateful. If they're, if they're wanting something, it, they, they begin immediately into the request. And so you can tell a lot about a person's heart. You can also tell a lot about their perspective of God. Is God approachable? Is he a father? Do you see him as, as someone that you can walk into his presence to pray? Or is he distant? Is he a judge? Is he hard to get a hold of? Do you feel like you're, you're pounding on the door? Or do you feel like you're welcome in his presence? Do you feel the God you're praying to is capable and that he's good and strong enough to do even, even beyond all you ask or imagine? What is, what is the God light that you pray to? What do you believe he can do? Your prayers reveal a lot about your perspective of God. Also reveals a lot about the priorities of your life. Many of us in our prayer lives pray about our jobs, we pray about our marriages, pray about our health, and we pray a lot about physical things. But how about the spiritual things? How about the invisible things? How about the things that last forever? How, how, how often do you pray about the growth of your own character? How often do you pray about the salvation of your family and your friends? How often do you pray about your church and the missions and the missionaries that we support? Do your prayers focus on thy will be done or my will be done? See, your, your prayers reveal a lot about your priorities in your life. And so we're going to learn a lot about Paul and what he thought was important for these young believers in Philippi to know about themselves. And I believe they're the same kind of things that we need to know to grow in our own walk with the Lord. And so we're going to dive in, starting with the very first verse of Philippians. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with us. If you have a bulletin, you can jot some notes down of how God is speaking to you. But it begins this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of, Jesus, or servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing alongside his companion, a guy named Timothy. Who is Timothy? Well, Timothy uh, grew up in a family with a Jewish mother and a Greek father. We, know, we don't know if his father knew the Lord, but we know his mother and his grandmother knew the Lord. And that Timothy, when he was very young, possibly a teenager at the age of 15 or 16, uh, was converted during a ministry of Paul. And Paul requested that he accompany Paul on his missionary journeys. And so Timothy began to travel with Paul. And at one point, Paul left him in Ephesus at a place where he actually became the pastor of a church. And later on in the Bible, you have two letters. They're, they're conveniently named 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They are letters to this pastor, Timothy, encouraging him in his leadership of that church in Ephesus. So they are together, and he identifies them as servants of Christ Jesus. Now, there are two words Paul gives for believers here. Servants of Christ Jesus, and then he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Both are very critical words to understand because Paul is in prison, and he appears to be a servant of the state. But Paul wants those believers in Philippi to know, hey, I may be in a prison in Rome, but my real servitude is to Jesus Christ. I am a servant, or some of your Bibles will say a bondservant, meaning I willingly have given my rights over to serve this ruler named Jesus Christ. No, nobody took that from me. Nobody stole my rights from me. I surrendered them to Jesus Christ. I choose to be his servant. Do you know that almost every writer of the New Testament identifies himself as a servant? I mean, I started flipping through one day. Jude does that. James does that. John does that. Peter does that. They all do it. They all call themselves servants of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, nobody is greater among you than the one who serves. And then he calls the, the believers in Philippi saints. 
Now, our religious culture has really done a disservice, particularly in the Catholic Church, by, by making sainthood something that's just for a select group of people, an elevated group of spiritually mature individuals. And so even if you use the phrase, well, you're a saint, then, it's like you're better than the rest of us. But Paul actually says all the believers in Philippi are saints because the word literally means ones who've been set apart, set apart by God, set apart for God. That's what a saint is. You're not holy in the sense you're better than anybody else. You're holy in the sense of you've been set apart by God for God. And so he says, all you believers are saints. In fact, you know, you have hospital schools named St. Thomas, St. Paul, St. Luke, St. John, St. Matthew, all that. Um, you're St. Richard. You're St. Caleb. You know, you're St. Susan. You're St. Michael. You're a saint. I mean, we just sang a song, Who I Am. Who does God say that I am? God says you're a saint. So don't ever say to someone, well, I ain't no saint. Yes, you are. If you're saved, you're a saint. Now, here's the goal. Every believer is a saint. Not every believer is a servant. And God wants to grow us to the place where we serve. And so Paul actually identifies some of the servants in the church. He says, he says specifically to you overseers, that's the elders, and you deacons, meaning that's another word for minister or servant. I'm identifying people in ministry in the church. And God wants all of us to first come to Jesus, come to a relationship with him, and then to go and to serve him. And we talked about that last week. We want to mature to the place where we saints become servants. And so then Paul um, ends that little introduction by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his standard salutation in in his letters. Almost every letter he brings that up. Why? Because grace is where it all begins. We are saved by grace. And the result of grace is peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. And you don't really have peace until you have experienced grace. And if you're lacking peace in your life, I can pinpoint the problem back to a lack of grace in your life. Because grace is where peace finds its roots. And so he says, grace and peace to you. Grace with you and God and peace in all of your relationships because of what God has done in your life. And then he goes into this prayer. And I just want to break this prayer apart in three sections because as I looked at this, I really found within this, this this exuberance in Paul, this extreme joy that he had in his relationship with the Philippians. And there's some reasons for it. And I believe they're the same reasons why the Philippians could have joy and you and I can have extreme joy in our lives. He starts off with this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The first source of of extreme joy is the opportunity to partner in ministry. Now, this word that's translated partnership is the word koinonia. The youth group I was in 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 high school is called the koinonia youth group. We love that word because it refers to fellowship. And some of your Bibles may say fellowship, but most of them now say partnership because we have watered down the meaning of fellowship to mean simply sharing something in common. And, and sometimes we even say, like, if we drink coffee and eat donuts together, we're fellowshipping. <laughs> and uh, it's part of the Holy Trinity, really, of, of social um, interaction within the church. The Holy Trinity of fun, food, and fellowship, right? Everyone have Christians get together. Those three things are supposed to be part of it, fun, food, and fellowship, the Holy Trinity of social 
uh, interaction within the church. But fellowship is deeper than that. It's more than just sharing something in common. It's, it's bigger than just like drinking from the same well. It means we are working side by side. It means we are together in this. And that's what brought Paul such joy. Not simply because they were saved. Paul didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm so excited and so joyful because you know Jesus. He says, what really thrills me is the fact that you're with me in this. We're together. We're partners in this gospel work. And so Paul is, is reminding them of this commitment they've made with him. In fact, when he gets to the fourth chapter, he brings it up again. In the fourth chapter, he says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, not, not the beginning of when Jesus died, but the beginning of my ministry, when I came to you, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. He's speaking of their partnership, particularly their financial partnership. They would send gifts through a servant named Epaphroditus. He's mentioned in the book of Philippians. Epaphroditus would take that support to Paul. Paul would be able to buy groceries and buy the resources he needed, do ministry. Paul would write a note back to them, send it through Epaphroditus back to the church. The, the letter to Philippians is a letter delivered from Paul through Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi. And he says, you, of all the churches, you're the only one that shares with me in this ministry of giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. They would give, and Paul would write notes, and they would receive back from Paul this whole relationship, giving and receiving. They weren't doing the same work. They were doing different work, but both of them were critical. You talk to any missionary and ask them, could you do what you do without the financial support of, of your backers? They say, no, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it without those, you know, the little old lady that sends me $50 every month. I couldn't do it without my parents sending us $200 a month. I couldn't do it without those churches that have written us into their missions, but we couldn't do it. And they really believe this is a partnership. And I can promise you this. If you are a missionary or if you're in a parachurch ministry that relies on donations, you are so grateful for your supporters. You are filled with joy because they have partnered with you in, in this work of the gospel. Now, there's other ways to do that. There's other ways. You can do it through prayer, partnership through prayer. You can't go to all the places we, we have missionaries in. You can't go to Africa, New Zealand, Indonesia, you know, Europe, all these places, Mexico, but you can go there in prayer. You can go there in your prayers, and that's very critical, partnering with them in prayer. See, here's, here's what Paul's doing. Paul can't go around right now and preach at these churches because he's in prison. But do you know what they can't stop Paul from doing? Praying. And that's why you see these prayers show up in every single letter. It sounds like prayer, prayer is not just like a, a five-minute part of Paul's day. It feels like Paul prays for hours a day for this church and for that church and for that church. And they're not just prayers of request. He's just thanking God for what God's doing. He's, he's continuing to nurture what God had already started within those congregations. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. There are people here in this church that pray for me every week. I send them a list of prayer requests. They pray for me. I've been told by uh, Pastor Jace that the children's workers, when they gather before their classes and they pray for the children, they also pray for us over here and they pray for me. Uh, I know a small group that prays for me every week. You know, I, I rely on that. I need the support of prayers. You do too. In whatever ministry you're doing, don't be, don't be afraid to ask people, hey, pray for me. This is what God's wanting me to do and I need your prayers. We partner together in prayer. We also partner together through volunteering. 
by actually rolling up our sleeves and working side by side. Shortly after I became a Christian, I started helping at our church VBS. I started volunteering within the church on Sunday mornings. As I grew in my faith, I became a small group leader, Bible study teacher. When I went off to college, I got connected to a local church, started um, teaching Sunday school to the high school youth. I mean, God called us to serve. And so we partner in the gospel when we roll up our sleeves. You know, on Sunday mornings, when I walk around, I see volunteers in the coffee bar or the tech booth or, or interact with the people who are on stage, or I see the children's workers or the, the guardians or that, the people at the connection counter or welcome center. Anywhere that I go within the church and I see people who are volunteering, there's a special joy in my heart because they are partnering with us. They're not just here to receive, they're here to give. Someone asked me last week, an anonymous note came in saying, hey, how come the church always cheers when we give and we don't cheer during communion? Well, if you want to cheer for communion, please do. Um, But let me just share with you one perspective. Uh, The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. And so, you know, there's a reason why we cheer, because we're cheerful. But even beyond that, during communion, communion is primarily a receiving moment of the service. I, I receive from the Lord. I'm ministered to by his grace. I'm reminded of his sacrifice for me. That's wonderful to receive. You know what's even more blessed? What does Jesus say? It's more blessed to do what? To give than receive. And we may say like, oh, communion, that's the, that's the hallmark of the service. There's even a church here in town now that I understand here in Fountain that you can get drive-by communion. Drive-by communion. And, uh, and I think there's going to be a person out there with the hose. If you want to get a drive-by baptism, they'll, they'll baptize you too. So, you know, if you want to drive-by stuff, you can, you can do that. But we really want to have the joy. It's when you give, not just give money, but you give yourself. When you come forward for prayer and you commit yourself to the Lord, any opportunity we have to give of ourselves to the Lord, God says, you're even more blessed. I blessed you with what I gave you. You're even more blessed now by what you gave back to me. And that's why we get excited about giving. Not just giving money, but giving our lives to the Lord. Giving our time to the Lord. Giving our energy to the Lord. I have a friend that was, uh, he started working with me in Arizona in children's ministry. And I got to know this guy and we became good friends. We had started having lunches together, meeting early in the morning for breakfast. And uh, he became an elder in the church. And later he became the chairman of the elders in the church. He helped lead a lot of building campaigns in the church. He now travels around the world, does mission work for that church. And uh, this summer, he's going to come up to, to do some work here in Colorado Springs and is going to spend some time at our house. And you know what? He and I, even though we don't see each other that often, have such an incredible friendship and a bond. And, and it's all because of this one thing, not because we're both Christian, but, be, but because we are partners in the work of the gospel. There is a bond that's formed when you have someone who's willing to give themselves to the work of Christ to help other people know Jesus. And it is just incredible. It fills you with joy. And so we have this incredible opportunity to partner in ministry. And if you're not doing that, you're missing out on something. See, uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, They're a team, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. We are partners with each other, but ultimately we are partners with God. God's doing a great thing. doesn't matter if you're the one planting the seeds or the one watering. You're the one in front. You're the one behind the scenes. doesn't matter. We're all on the same team. We're all working for the same thing to create an environment in which God can do what only God can do. 
Okay? Second source of joy is found in this next part of the prayer. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about, all of, about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, there's this great love and joy pouring out from Paul's words here. And, uh, and the reason there's so much joy is because of the certainty of God's faithfulness. Verse 6 is an often quoted verse. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. You know, I've heard that verse my whole life, and I've heard this verse stated this way. You know, if, if God saves you, God, God is going to bring you to full maturity in Christ by the end of your life. It's like God puts you on this conveyor belt. He begins to work on you and adjust you and mold you. By the time you get here, you're fully developed. And while that sounds good, and that sounds like what that's teaching, I wanted to share with you, that's not what most scholars believe. That's what that verse is really saying. And here's the problem. Sometimes we hear things so often from, in, in Bible verses that we hear it enough and believe, if I've heard it enough times, it must be true. Now, I want to give you a different perspective. What this verse is saying is that God is faithful. But faithful to what? See, if it's true that God, and this is part of a whole big package of, of theological beliefs that says God is sovereign, that if God determines he's going to do something, nobody's getting in his way. He's going to do it. So if he decides to save you, you can't resist it. You will be saved, and he'll put you on his conveyor belt, and he will mold you and shape you, and when you get to the end of your life, you'll be this fully blossomed believer that he intended you to be. And while that sounds like it makes a lot of sense, there's a problem with that. That's not been my experience. I've known a lot of Christians who never developed their full potential. I've, I've met a lot of believers who never became all that God wanted them to be. Why? Because God was unfaithful? No. That still was God's plan. They got in the way of his plan. See, God is sovereign, but God has allowed us to play a part in there. That's why you can read all through the book of Philippians, just the book of Philippians, and Paul tells believers that you have a part to play. He tells them, put on the attitude of Christ Jesus. He tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He tells them to forget what is behind and press on toward what is ahead. He tells them to rejoice in the Lord always. He says it again, rejoice. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, bring your requests before the Lord. He tells them to think about things that are noble and excellent and good. He says, you have a part to play. These are things you need to do to keep growing. God's not going to force you to, to spiritual maturity. His goal is to get you there, and he will faithfully get you there, but it requires a cooperative effort on your part. You work with them. It's just like that verse from the agriculture. You know, Paul planted seeds. Paulus watered those seeds. The miracle was what God did. But let me ask you this. What if Paul never planted seeds, and what if Paulus never watered them? God's ability to grow something would be hindered, Right? How can God grow seeds that have never been planted? How can grow seeds when people failed to, to water those seeds? Now, we, we all agree, spiritual rebirth is a miracle of God. You can't create that. You can't generate that. You can't make that happen. But we have a part to play in, in creating an environment which God can do what only God can do. And so that's, that's what the uh, Philippians and the other books of the Bible say. Uh, I was looking at internet service this week because we have a little problem with ours, and I'm really, uh, I've always been tempted to switch over to CenturyLink because CenturyLink has a service 
where you can get service for life at a certain price. So you can get certain gigabytes at this price, and it'll go for the rest of your life. And I really like that idea. Like, I can, I can have that service when I'm 85 years old. I'm still paying the same price. That's a pretty good thought. Problem is, they don't have fiber optic cables in my neighborhood, so I can't get it yet. But let me ask you. They have promised internet for life. But what if you don't pay your bill? What if you move? Have they broken the promise to you? No. They're, they're still faithful. You have changed. And you see this all through the Bible where God says to Israel, I will put you in the promised land and you'll be there secure for generations. Nobody will ever remove you from the land. It'll be flowing with milk and honey. I'll defeat the enemies around you. Oh, by the way, my assumption is you're going to walk with me and follow me and trust me. If you don't, I can't do what I'm wanting to do for you. And the same is true for us. God wants to do so much in our lives, but it requires us to to cooperate with, not that we're earning it, not that we're meriting it, but, but we're allowing it to happen in our lives. And that's why we read in Scripture that God is glorified when we live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. God gets the glory. We don't. But we have a responsibility to live our lives. See, the other part of this verse that is often misunderstood is what the good work is. What is this good work? He who began a good work. What is the good work? The assumption is, well, that's salvation. That's you coming to Christ. Did you know that is never, ever, anywhere in the Bible called a good work? Every instance where the words good work is, is described in the Bible, it refers to what God has done through the efforts of people. For example, here's, here's some verses that illustrate that. Let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiently in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He says in Colossians, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Who's doing the good work? Well, we're doing, God's doing the good works through us. He's doing good works through us. The Holy Spirit is mobilizing us, prompting us, trying to direct us to do things that will glorify God. But we have, to, we have to respond to that. We have to say yes to what he's leading us to do. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. So God is working in us so that we can work for him. We are being shaped by him to be his servants. There's a verse that we'll get to later in second chapter of Colossians, but, it's, but it plays into this really well. It says in chapter 2, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation. Work out what God has worked in. Now, when you go to the gym, you say, Hey, I'm going down to the Gold's Gym. I'm going down there to work out. Are you going there to obtain something? No. You're going there to exercise something. You have muscles. And you go there to exercise your muscles. By the way, someone says, hey, you got some new muscles. No, you didn't. You have the same muscles you were born with. Do you know that? Same fat cells too, by the way. (laughs) You don't gain more. They just get bigger. Same thing with muscles. They just get bigger. You got more developed muscles than the other person. But you all have the same. You don't get new muscles. I don't go there to get muscles. I go there to develop muscles. Faith is to be exercised. It's like a muscle that has to be flexed. We work out what God has worked in. 
God has planted this in us. God has given us the ability to do that. Now we have to, it's our job to exercise it. Make sense? We have to exercise our faith. And that's what Paul's saying here. God did, God started some good work in you. What is this good work? What's the whole context of his prayer? Your partnership from the first day until now. When I came there to preach the gospel, not one church supported me but you. That's the good work. But you know what's happening? We've been supporting you a long time, Paul. It's getting kind of hard to keep up with this. Paul, Paul says, God wants you to finish because, because there's more work to be done. See, here's where this plays into our lives, and here's where I, what I want you to think about. Don't get all wrapped up if you grew up here in a different view of this passage than, than how I just shared it with you because the main point is this. God is faithful. God is faithful. And yes, God will work with you to grow you to maturity as you trust in him, as you allow the Holy Spirit to work in him. That is fully true. That's fully scriptural. But it also means that the assignment that God has given you, the good thing, the good work he started in you, he wants to finish. So think about this. God prompts you to to write a book. God prompts you to start a ministry. God prompts you to go back to college and get a degree. God, God prompts you to start serving somewhere. God prompts you to start talking about your faith. And you know what happens along the way? We start getting like, God, this is getting hard. This is getting discouraging. Or I feel like I'm all alone. Where are you, God? And God says, I'm still right here. If I started it, I'm going to finish it. I'm committed to this. I'm committed to working with you to bring this to completion. See, there's times where, where I've struggled in ministry and said, God, you know, man, I could, I, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that are easier than this and that I think I could do better than this. And then I go back to the calling. See, I didn't go to college to be a pastor. I, I went to college to be a better servant. But in the process of being a servant, God said, hey, I want you to go into full-time ministry. And I often go back to that saying, God started that work in me. Until God says you're done, I'm not done. And whatever God put in you, maybe it was, maybe, maybe it was a new habit to start reading your Bible, start having regular prayer times, start tithing. Whatever it is, God started something in you God says, I'm still with you on it. I'm still, I'm still going to make that possible. I will resource you. I will work in you to will and to act according to my good purpose. I'll keep pushing you toward that end. And so we want God to complete his work in us. So here's the, here's the joy we should have is God who began that work in me wants to complete it. I'm not going to quit until God says we're done. That's the That's the certainty. Then he goes on in this um, last section of his prayer saying, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There is, there's capacity for growing in love. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. You know, at first it may seem like, oh, really? I got to grow more? It could be seen as a negative, like you need to grow more. But it also can be seen as a positive, like I have more capacity. There's there's more in me than I I even see. God, God sees that I'm capable of far more love than I ever imagined. See, the whole focus of the Christian life is to grow in love. Jesus said the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And then when you follow through the New Testament, we hear it over and over again. Love one another as I have loved you. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Love, love, love. See, we sometimes think, 
if I get to know this whole book, and I study the Bible and get to know its contents, I will be spiritually mature. Don't fool yourself. We should get to know the Bible, but that's a means to, to grow in love because if it's an end, what happens is we get big heads. We become the know-it-alls, and we become debaters. And Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We don't want big heads. We want big hearts. And I tell you, when I first came to know the Lord, I had a small heart. My, my love capacity was like this. But I'll tell you now, it's like this. You know, there were, when, when I was first a believer, there were people I loved and people I didn't love. And I found some people very difficult to love. But I'll tell you this. I, my love now has, has expanded its borders. Where I, I love people who have different political views. People who have different um, sports teams. I mean, I... I love people that, that are different heights, different sizes, different skin colors. I love people different, who live different moral lives than me, who make different moral choices than I do. That's one of the big ones. I love them. Where's that come from? It's not me. It wasn't like I decided, like, I'm just going to be a better lover. It's, it's because God is, is pouring love in. See, the Bible says that God is love. And that God is the one who initiates love. We love not because we decided to. We love because he first loved us. And how do we know that? Well, he sent his son dying a cross for us while we were still sinners. God, God loved us when we were unlovable. But it doesn't stop there. He then pours his love into our hearts. See, Romans chapter 5 says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's like God says, you know, I got this bucket here and I'm just going to start pouring it through the channel of the Holy Spirit into you. And you go, okay, Lord, how much do I get? As much as you want. I want it to be expanding. I want it to be abounding. I want it to be overflowing so that yeah, you are so full of my love that it just spills over to everybody around you. See, God wants our love to abound more and more. But then he adds this qualifier. This qualifier says, with all knowledge and discernment. Well, I thought if you just, what do you mean, Knowledge and discernment of love. Don't you just love? Everyone knows what love is. You just love people. Do you know there's actually bad ways to love? Hurtful ways to love? Do you know there are some parents who hover over their children, kind of they call helicopter parents, want to protect them from every, every bad thing that can happen to them, want to make sure that they're always winners, that they, they never get bullied, they never get rejected. You know, and we, we protect them. Why? Because we love them. And in loving them, we hurt them because they don't develop some, some skills and traits they need to, to deal with life. There was a book written about 10 years ago called When Helping Hurts. And the book was really about how when there's a crisis in the world, you know, hurricane, tornado, whatever it is, our response is let's box up some clothes, let's send a check, let's, let's send relief to them. And what they've discovered is that oftentimes our helping hurts. Because rather than empowering the people to address their own issues, we as kind of the, the superheroes come in and say, ah, you don't have to worry about it, we'll take care of it for you. That rather than just give money, rather than just give clothes, give them resources that they then can solve their own problems. See, what, what they've learned is that what people in need really want is relationship more than relief. They want people who will walk beside them, who care about them, who will pray with them and encourage them. That's what they want. And sometimes we feel like, if I just write that check, if I send that box of toys, if I just send, box up some clothes and send them, that's loving. Well, 
It may not be. See, there's another book that illustrates this point called The Five Love Languages. And the author, Dr. Gary Chapman, says, says people receive love in different ways. And if you don't understand how they receive love, you may err in trying to love them. For example, here's the five love languages he identifies. Words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, physical touch, and receiving gifts. Now, let me just do a little survey here. How many of you would say your, your primary love language, if, if you want to receive love, this is how you feel love, it's, it's through words of affirmation. Raise your hand. How many of you would say the primary way you receive love is through um, quality time? How many of you would say through receiving gifts? How many of you would say through acts of service? How about physical touch? Big one. See, very similar. And then some of you still trying to figure your language out. That's okay. That's, that's probably why your spouse is struggling with it too. Your kids have a language. If you learn their love language, not what I feel is love, it's what they receive as love. And sometimes you have to work at it. And sometimes if you're not a good note writer, you say, but if, if, if my spouse's love language is words of affirmation, I need to write a note. That'll mean a lot to them. It's not, it's not what I need, but it's what they need. That's his whole point. Be wise. Be discerning about how you love because you want to love well. You want to love well. And Paul says, this is the privilege you have to keep growing and keep growing. And it's not something you have to generate because God is pouring his love into you. Just let it abound. Let it overflow. See, what you and I have to realize is God is an endless supply of love. And some of you, some of you have trouble loving like that because you, you have trouble understanding that God loves you like that. You really have a difficult time understanding that God has this incredible, immeasurable love for you. It's not based on what you've done or, or how you behaved or how, how you look or what you think. He loves you as you are because he made you. And he loves you so much where you are that he wants to help you to become what he sees you as becoming. But God, love, God has this incredible love. I remember the first time I understood the love. I knew Jesus died on the cross. I grew up in a church that taught that. There was a cross in the middle of the church. But it was a breakthrough moment when I discovered the God of all creation really, truly loves me. Do you know that? We're going to sing about that here, and I'm going to invite you to respond to that love. Go ahead and stand. Prayer partners, would you be available up front? If you've never surrendered to this love, this is your opportunity to do that. Maybe your heart is like this, and, and God wants to pour love into it. Just open to receive it. Say, Jesus, I receive your love today. I receive and believe the fact that you sent your son to die on that cross for me, and I today want to open myself because, Lord, I'm starved for love. I need your love today. Would you welcome his love to you? Maybe you're struggling with love today. Maybe your heart has gotten stiff, not flexible, it's not growing. Maybe today's a day to reconnect, to give God full access to your heart, to pour his love in. Maybe you're dealing with a difficult relationship. Loving's been hard. God wants to help break through that in your lives. Our prayer partners would love to help you to break through with that today. So let's respond. If you need prayer, our prayer partners are here for you. For the rest of us, let's lift up our voices and praise the God who loves.